Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. I'm pleased to introduce the next guest on Asia Tech Podcast. Hal Bosher is the CEO of Yoma Bank. Yoma Bank is a retail bank in Myanmar, or Burma as it was once called. In this interview, we look at the Myanmarese startup scene. We talk about the young Myanmarese generation and their hunger for entrepreneurialism, innovation, and technology. We learn a bit about Hal Bosch's backstory as well. How was it this Canadian ended up in Myanmar, the roundabout journey that took him there by his own confession, a frontier markets person. It only seemed natural that he would gravitate towards the adventure that is Myanmar. So coming up, this interview with Hal Bosher. And this interview was done in the Mandarin Oriental in Singapore. So as you can probably hear, a bit of the ambience of doing the interview in a cafe. So thanks a lot for Hal for making this possible. Our schedules were a little bit busy, but we made it in the end. So sit back and relax and enjoy this interview with Hal Bosher. Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show. All right, so this is Graham Brown, Asia Tech Podcast. We are in the Mandarin Oriental in Singapore. I am with Hal Bosher. Hal, welcome. Thanks very much, Graham. It's good to, ha- good to meet you finally. It's a bit of a journey coming here. You coming from Myanmar to Singapore, and me just kind of come across Singapore on F1 day. That's quite That's hard. right. Now we're rocking the breakfast of the Mandarin Oriental, yeah. We are. So if you hear the ambience, that's yeah. what it sounds like here yeah. in the Mandarin Oriental. We're going to talk about Yoma Bank, we're going to talk about Myanmar, uh-huh. and we're going to talk about the unorthodox route of how you got from Canada to Myanmar. Where are you from in Canada? Sounds good. I'm from Toronto. I grew up so, in Toronto, went right. to university in Montreal, yeah. Right. But you did a roundabout route to get there, right? Through US, Hong Kong. To get to Myanmar? Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. You want the story? Oh, we'll come there in a minute. Let's do the intro first. (laughs) I think you're quite a well-known name. I mean, LinkedIn, you have a big following. You have a a big presence on LinkedIn. A lot of followers. A lot of people like what you do. Um, People familiar with Yoma Bank. Let's talk about... Let's put that on the table first. Yeah, yeah. Let's do it. Let's talk about that and what the problem is that you're solving. And you describe yourself not as a banker as Mm. well. I mean, that's an interesting start. Yeah, I'm not not a banker. I'm learning. Right. So why did you start a bank? I didn't. I mean, it's not my bank, right? Right. So I work for uh, a Burmese family, a Myanmar family called the the Pun family, uh, who are quite well-known as a group. They have a listed vehicle in, in Singapore. So Yoma Bank was founded in 1993. By 2003, it was the second largest bank in Myanmar. Um, there was a financial crisis, as some people may know, in Myanmar in, in the 2000s. Mm. And our license was restricted. So we weren't allowed to take deposits or make loans for 10 years. Mm. It's quite difficult for a bank, wow. right? How do you survive? So, well, the bank pivoted to a remittance business. So basically mm. moving money uh, over the counter around the, around the country, just mm-hmm. domestic. 2012, the license was returned, uh, was returned to the bank. And I uh, stepped in... Uh, it, then in 2012. So right. I've been running the bank uh, for roughly the last six years. Right. Did you get a call? How did it happen? What yeah, were you doing at well, that point? Okay. So it, it's a bit uh, abstract, but I, I spent most of my career working for a, a rather um, unknown part of the World Bank called MIGA. Mm. So MIGA does political risk insurance. Mm. It's typically run by the, by the Japanese. So anyway... Uh, I, and so I was up in Hong Kong and I was doing uh, quite a lot of work with some of the larger investment banks. Um, guaranteeing their their investments actually mm. in, in Vietnam and other countries, and I ran into Melvin Pun. So Melvin is is Serge Pun's son, 
Melvin's quite um, an accomplished uh, banker in truth. He was at Goldman Sachs, so he spent, uh, I think, about a decade at Goldman. And long story short, when he left Goldman, I left the World Bank. I managed to convince my family to, to come along with me. And so we moved to Myanmar in the in the fall of 2012. Right. And I was not hired to to run Yuma Bank. I was hired to help the, help the family set up a private equity fund. Mm. The license just happened to come back at that moment. And I think my chairman just said, I would never forget. He said, go look, go look at the bank. And I said, there's a bank. And he said, yeah, it's on the sixth right. floor. So I went down to the sixth <laughs> floor and there, and there, there it was, was right. but it was, it was on, it was on hold. The thing was on ice, right? It hadn't right. moved for 10 years. There were no deposits. It was nothing. Right. So coming in at that moment was pretty interesting. Yeah. Had you been to Myanmar before? No. That? Right. Uh, yes, I had. I was, I lived in Indonesia, uh, in the mid two thousands and I went on holiday for a couple of weeks. That was right. It. So when the pitch came to come to Myanmar, yeah. you were in you were in Hong Kong at the yeah. time. Yeah. Comfortable life. Very comfortable, yeah. You could have done that yeah. for your, forever. Yeah. Seen out your days in yeah. Hong Kong doing yeah. that, right? Yeah. yeah. Why? Um, I'm a frontier markets person. Right. I, uh, if we track my story, I, I spent a couple of years in Africa. I lived in Madagascar and, and, and the Indian Ocean. And wow. I, I enjoy that. Right. I like the. I like getting up every day, and and you, I, there's a sense of accomplishment by just getting through the day, yeah. which I don't think you feel necessarily in more developed markets. Oh yeah. So I enjoy that. Uh, and so for me, it was a. It was a. It was an opportunity. I, I must say, I thought I'd end up in Africa, not in Asia. Yeah. But Myanmar just opened at the right moment, and, and there I was. I took the opportunity right well there's so many things that you've thrown out there madagascar we have to come back to that in a minute let's talk about the bank itself so why do i mean obviously you weren't tasked with coming over to invent or reinvent that bank there was something was the the family office and setting up a a fund for the office or yeah a private equity fund for that basically for the family which is in operations now somebody else runs it it's called delta capital uh it's quite successful it's one of the larger funds in myanmar but i don't have much to do with it right so the bank when somebody said to you, have a look at the bank, yeah. and you went and had a look at it, and you yeah. thought, okay, well, there's a bank there on the yeah. sixth floor. Yeah. yeah, Why did that then sort of resonate with you, like, this yeah. is what I want to do? Well, <laughs> it's actually a great question. I don't, I'm, I really wasn't given the choice. I mean, it was sort of, I think it was more, the, it needs support. The license right. just came back. You know, I have some capability. Uh, in, in, in fairness, it's not, it's not a complex market. The complexity of banking is not the challenge. It's more the operational execution. Right. So I think my chairman wanted some support for the bank, and that's how it started. Yeah. And I was just prepared to step in and make it happen. Yeah. But as you said, you had identified that they'd lost their license or they'd been embargoed yeah, for yeah, 10 yeah, years, yeah, right? Yeah, so you were yeah. walking into a difficult situation straight off the bat. Was that a challenge to you? Do you yeah. sort of think, okay, this is so, great so, now? So, so, so. Stay with me. The 2,000 people, effectively no one that spoke English, maybe a little bit, a few people. I had a colleague uh, who, from, who had, was a repat, as we call them in Myanmar, Myanmar coming back from, uh, who was with me and helping in the bank. But it was very difficult. Right. Uh, and particularly starting from zero. I mean, there was very little revenue, right? Very, very challenging situation. The, the bank branches were in terrible condition. Mm. The people were demoralized, right? And so it was really about picking the bank up off the floor. Now, I, I did a number of things um, to help. I, I, I drew on my, 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 my network, if you like, and we were, we were lucky enough to, to get the IFC, which is part of the World Bank, to come and help out. Mm. So there was an advisory contract. I had an Irishman, a real banker, I would say, uh, who helped for three years. So he would tell me what should happen, and then I would look at what could happen, mm. and we'd end up with a compromise. So I learned kind of on the job about 
you know, what was possible. Right. But I think that open mind was very important. I didn't think, I still don't think I know banking, but there are many people who come to Myanmar far more experienced than me, who mm. try to impose a certain way of doing things, right. and they get very frustrated, and it, it's not really suitable for the marketplace. What does that mean? So you mean somebody who's had 20 years yeah. of banking experience, yeah. this yeah. is how banking yeah. works, yeah. and this is how you're yeah. going to, you know, you're going to follow the letter of the law here, and this is how I do it, right? And they get blown away because right. they're used to having some infrastructure, right? Yeah. Most people expect there to be a core banking system. Yeah. Right. So if you spend 20 years at, at HSBC, you've never had to install a core banking system. Right. Someone else does that for you, right? Yeah. In Myanmar, you're doing everything soup to nuts, right? right? So I've got, you know, I have to think about technology. I got to think about my branch security. I got to think about my human resource. I got to think about branches that flood, logistics, cars. You know, it's 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 everything. a real catch-all. It's a yeah. blank slate. Yeah. You've didn't that do, freak you out a little bit? I mean, I didn't. I didn't this, know. There's a point when you want to have like a swift payment system or a bank system. I didn't system, know right? enough to freak out. I, right. I honestly was so blind. Yeah. I mean, I had no idea. I think looking back at it now, I realized. I think had I known, I'm not sure I would have taken the job. Right. <laughs> I, but I, I just didn't. I was so, so oblivious. Right. That I just jumped in. You yeah. know, it's one of those things where nobody told you you couldn't do it, so you yeah, just went ahead yeah, and yeah. did it. Right? Yeah. So do you, I mean, we'll talk a bit about the bank. I'm curious about you, the person. Do you think of yourself as entrepreneurial in that sense? Because I mean, if you come from the world of, like, for example, the UN or the yeah, World or Bank, Bank or, yeah. you know, like, non-profit sector. No, I don't. I don't. It's a very sort of entrepreneurial attitude to have to it, isn't it? It's that, okay, I'm going to go in as an optimist and we're going to work this out. I, I've never thought of myself as, a, as an entrepreneur, hmm. really. I have think I, I do think of myself as somebody who's adventurous and likes a challenge. Right. Um, I like a challenge. You know, there's some people that uh, shy away from, from that. For me, I, I I like something that's hard appeals to me. Hmm. Um, so I, I guess if that's entrepreneurial, then yeah, then, then I in am. spirit, yeah, yeah. But I, I yeah, yeah. So there must have been times when you were looking at that challenge and thought, think, I can't do this or, you know, I want to give up or back to Hong Kong because it must have been tempting. You had a good life in Hong Kong and very well, look, expat, sort there, of comfortable there, existence. I, yeah. And I had a, I had a tough ride. I mean, uh, without getting too personal, I, um, when I arrived, my, um, six months later, my sister died. Oh, wow. Yeah. Sorry and she, yeah. She died uh, in her late 30s. In Canada? Uh, in the US uh, of cancer. Oh. And so... You know, I think for a year or two after that, I just put my head down and just yeah. worked. Uh, difficult emotionally to get through, mm. but I just put my, I mean, I just, I think of it now, you know, Myanmar can be, can be challenging. I just st- put my head down and just, right. just worked. I don't think I wanted to think about it very much, right? So I think that was, that was another element driving me. At the mm. time, I had three small children. I still do. Mm. Let me say they're still around. Right. So uh, they were very small at that time, right? So they were two and a half and, and sort of one-ish, yeah. right? And so it was a lot going on, right? Three small kids in Burma trying to keep it all together. Yeah, yeah. It was hard work, really hard work. Um, when you take a family to a new country like that, I mean, your kids were one and a half, two? When we arrived, the twins were one and a half and right. my, my wife was pregnant. Right? Yeah, wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, taking a pregnant woman to Myanmar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That wasn't part of the yeah, deal when you yeah, met her, right? Yeah. <laughs> We're going to censor this part of the interview. Yeah. Okay, yeah. but I think I think this is a really interesting part of the interview. I mean, it's stuff that resonates with me as well is that you know, you, especially when you take kids to a new country yeah. and see how they adapt. Yeah, you know, for them, even though they have no experience, mm. in a way, they adapt much yeah. faster than much. adults, right? Yeah. And it's kind of like a parallel when you're talking about moving into a bank as well. You know, you weren't a banker; you came in with no experience of a retail bank, right? And you went in and you transformed the place. 
if you'd come in as a banker, you would have just kind of replicated totally, the DNA of what totally, you knew, right? Totally. Absolutely. And I realized that only after the fact. You know, I didn't, again, I didn't realize, this is all sort of a post-mortem, if you like, or, yeah. you know, looking back at it, I, I think you're absolutely right. I didn't realize that, mm. but I realized how much of a strength it was because the Myanmar had a certain way of doing things. Mm. And I think what really helped me, if I, if I can, from the World Bank was a sense of, of, of empathy. A sense of mm. openness and empathy to to listen to, to 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 other people's point of view and to make them feel like they're being listened to. Yeah, and I think that got me the support of the people in the bank that felt like I wasn't there to either dominate them, tell them what to mm. do, belittle them, you know, tell them the way it should be. I didn't know myself, right? So I was learning, and I think they felt that, and I had an open mind. And I look at that now, and I think that that sense of, you know, I got into the World Bank for development, right? I wanted to help. Mm. I wanted to help other mm. people. And there were some frustrations in that large organization, but here I really could. And I think that uh, is a thread that stayed through between the two organizations. Right. The, willi- the, the You know, wanting to help people, and I think the people in the bank could really feel that. That word empathy, I think it's a very powerful yeah. word. And- underused i mean some people talk about it yeah. but how powerful that is in organizations as well we're uh, so different here right. i am a six foot two canadian right? yeah sitting with a myanmar lady 20 years older than me you know she's been through hell if you like in myanmar over her life right, right? and i'm gonna come and tell her you know how things should be you know you got to take a breath right you got to step back and find the right balance where does it come from though is that something you can learn the fact that you, you know, you spend time in Madagascar or, you know, all over the world. Where does empathy come from? Because it, you, we don't often hear bankers talking about empathy, do we? Or maybe, in, you know, their CSR reports, yeah, but yeah. not actually practicing this, yeah. right? I think, well, first of all, I think you have to, you have to want to. Yeah, fair <laughs> and, enough. And, and you, you need to want to, right? If you don't care, then, you know. Yeah. I, I, equally, I felt, you know, I I'm a white Canadian. I come from a pretty privileged existence mm. and even in Canada and I think that a recognition of that made me want to go and do things that uh, weren't in my comfort zone so I mean it's a small thing but I grew up playing basketball right so I didn't play hockey like all the other Canadians right I played basketball and I ended up playing basketball on the street with whatever kids were around right and so me being white had no bearing in fact yeah. it, it, it almost hurt me right because I wasn't as cool as some of the other kids but I enjoyed that and I think it really started with that culture that idea of, of playing a, a sport that's a bit rough around the edges, that really has a street culture. And then starting from that, that really led me out on a, on a thread yeah. out of that little comfortable existence in Canada and into something that's you know, really not, you know, no, nobody would look at me and say, oh yeah, you're the right guy to, yeah, to yeah, go yeah. and help a bank in Burma, right? Yeah. What? No. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about what you've done there. Yeah, yeah. And preface that if we may, there's a really interesting thread at the moment when people talk about Asia and they look at how these, you know, Asian services are developing. Yeah. Until now, we've yeah. always known Asia yeah. as a sort of the warehouse of the world, you know, right. cheap t-shirts, yeah. sneakers, yeah. and so yeah. on. Yeah. What's happening now is this sort of service level of Asia is developing, yeah. and they don't have a precedent in many sense. So, you know, if you go to Thailand, you can get some of the best medical healthcare yeah. in the yeah. world. Yeah. You know, you can go to a hospital where they've kind of built a hospital around the patient or around the customer, if I yeah. can say that. Yeah. They haven't sort of come with all this vested interest yeah. and said, this is how healthcare is done. So we're seeing this sort of happening all over Asia at the moment. Let's talk about Yoma Bank and what you're doing there. Yeah. You, you, saw, you were given a blank slate. Yeah. What is it that you're doing now? What, you talk about empathy. How do you do banking differently? What yeah. kind of services yeah. do you offer and so on? Well, you know, it's quite interesting. It's sort of an extreme. Let, let's be clear. You know, the banking system in Myanmar for a long time was run by the government. Right? It was centrally. So the central bank was the bank. So a 
typically, historically, banking in Myanmar has been operational. And, and, and the way I phrase it is that, you know, it's banking as a privilege, not as a service. Right? Right. You're privileged to walk it's into a bank school, branch and, you know, you yeah. wait in line and, you know, eventually somebody will get to you, right? So I'm trying to turn that on his head. And I think, um, I think technology is, a, is, a, is a, just a means to do that, right? So more, banking is a service, right? We need to offer service. So you need to get like-minded people. And that's one of the reasons why I founded, uh, founded Wave Money, uh, which is a mobile money network that yeah. we founded about three years ago, to kind of try and get around that distribution issue. So there are lots of different angles. I'm not sure which one you want to touch on, but, you know, that concept of service, right, uh, is, is a very important one. And I, I would say we're not where we need to be, but we're getting there. Yeah, well, let's all the different angles. Let's talk about the one yeah. that excites you the most. Yeah. And sometimes I know it's unfair choosing between your children, maybe, but the projects that you work on. Let's talk about Wave Money, maybe. Yeah. So you started that three years ago. Yeah, we, I mean, again, just an opportunity, right? So I, right. there was not, no master plan, but at the time, um, the telcos, the large telcos, were coming into the country, yeah. and there was uh, so the two of them were Oradu and Telenor, and um, I was lucky enough to go to a conference where I met these Norwegians. And they, you know, were thinking about mobile money. I didn't really know what it was. So I yeah. got someone to sort of explain. And what was interesting is I think that the reason they chose to partner with us was for our governance. Not because we were big, right? So that's always been a theme at Yellow Bank. Good governance, transparency, you know, doing things the right way, which again yeah. has not been historically something that's happened in Myanmar. So we were the number 17 bank in the country at the time. So no good reason for them to partner. But they wanted culture and they wanted governance and they clearly wanted a local partner. Hmm. So we sort of, it was a bit of a ride along, right? I can't really say that we, so I, you know, spoke to the family and they were convinced, obviously we had to make an investment there. And so I, we, we again, I don't run that business. Uh, a chap named Brad, Brad Jones runs it, uh, who's very experienced. Uh, and he's done an incredible job. I've learned a lot from him and from Wave uh, sitting on the board. Um, but now that I see what Wave is, I think it's the distribution. I mean, Wave is over 30,000 agents now. Uh, and it really is mass market. So when you talk about giving a service, it is the right kind of service. It's basically an over-the-counter money transfer business, but it's extremely powerful. And we believe as a bank, we can plug our balance sheet into that. Mm. And that's exciting. So that gets me my distribution. I'm only 80 branches, right? Mm. I'm an 80 branch bank, which is fine. About one and a half billion dollar balance sheet, which is fine. But how do I scale? How do I get there? And 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 Wave has, has, has done that, right? They've scaled. Now, I have not yet plugged in all the financial service I want to yeah. using Wave as a network. But we feel that that's not too far away. Yeah. So effectively, you can scale without having to build out thousands of branches, right? Because Correct. you have... Because it doesn't work anyway, right? right? Bricks and mortar branches, that's already yeah. passed and in, in developed. Yeah. But in, in Myanmar, it's even worse because people are so distributed, right? right? They're everywhere. You can't find enough density to put a branch in it, right? Hmm. It's a rural community. You know, they want things that are accessible to them. And putting a bank branch in the middle of a field isn't going to work. Right. They're also expensive. Right? Yeah. A bank branch in Myanmar costs anywhere between three and $500,000 to set up, right? That's hmm. an expensive proposition. Yeah. You don't have ROI on that. Yeah. And with retail banking as well, I think the challenge has been for many retail banks, I mean, obviously, you know so much better than me, is that the actual retail banking part of the business is probably the least profitable, right? Because they have to have a high street bank, they have to staff it, you know, and all those kind of things. Whereas selling the products and services is probably a lot more profitable. So how do you sort of balance that? Because a key part of what you're about is building out a grassroots bank right in, in Myanmar yeah and I think again lucky as they say better lucky than good and mm. I think uh, we've been very lucky in the success of the telcos mm. so you know we have 4G in Myanmar mm. that's pretty exceptional right 
And just, again, geography means that there's a flood of cheap Chinese smartphones that come across the border. So, you know, this isn't uh, M-Pesa, you know, a feature phone. This is, you know, now they're not iPhones, but they've got capability. I mean, in those phones, there's a lot of processing power. And I think the network coverage combined with the access to hardware mm. for people is, is, is a huge opportunity, not only in banking, but in other, and other businesses are taking advantage of that. The mm. trick is, is that you can't just have a sexy app, right? How do you, how do you get the money into the phone and out again? And that's mm. where Wave comes in, right? Mm. Payments are so fundamental, not just for us as a bank, mm. but for the whole ecosystem of tech. Because you, you need to make money, but how do you access payment if the only thing you can do is get someone to give you money that goes on a bus that comes down? I mean, it, you, you, never, yeah. you, you just can't make money. You physically can't get it to you. Right? Yeah, yeah. So we're trying to crack the code on, on payments. Yeah. Have you cracked that with cross-border? Because, I mean, for example, like in here in Singapore, there's yeah. a big Burmese community, yeah. right? You yeah. know, and remitting money back yeah. to Myanmar. Do you think there's something there? It's coming. It's coming. Yeah. I mean, the, the government's quite sensitive to uh, foreign flows. Yeah. Um, I think they're more, obviously much more supportive of inward flows. Uh, and I think that's coming. Yeah. Right? Um, we, 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 uh, we have a, you know, an integration challenge around our own tech stack. So we got to get Wave, our stack, and then the offshore provider connected, and we're doing that. So it's not too far away, but it's not it's not a huge focus. We're trying to solve the local problem first, and then come to the international one. Right. Okay. Changing gears a little bit. Yeah. Let's go back to Madagascar. Uh-huh. You can't just sort of say Madagascar well, and leave it there yeah. casually in the conversation. So let's talk about that. How how right. did you end up there first? Right. I mean, that's so, probably the best question to ask. I'll it? take it back a step, and then we'll get to that. So <laughs> okay. I, when I left when I left uh, my undergrad, I went and studied at a school called the uh, SICE, Johns Hopkins. So anyway, I studied Southeast Asian studies there. Right. So in that in that year, I um, spent some time in Indonesia, etc. So when I left. Excuse me. When I left, uh, when I graduated, I went to work briefly for McKinsey in Germany, and it wasn't my bag, right? Um, and I, then I got an offer from IFC to join something called AMSCO, which was this little sort of project development facility based in, in, in truth, across Africa. But the region I was given an opportunity was in the Indian Ocean. So um, I then went, ended up, and I basically left. People thought I was nuts. I left. McKinsey. Imagine, yeah. I just thought it was completely nuts. So I left McKinsey and moved to moved to Mauritius. Wow. And covered, you know, I was basically between Mauritius and, and Madagascar covering, you know, covering doing the work. And I was there yeah. for two and a half years. And then I moved to East Java, lived in Surabaya, lived in a hotel, the Mandarin Oriental in Surabaya right. for a year. Yeah. And then moved back to DC for three years. And then I spent two years in Barcelona and then three years in Hong Kong and then ended up in Burma. So, so Africa was really interesting. Yeah. Was that your first time there? You were in Germany at the time. Yeah, I'm trying to think. You know, sort of, yeah. Yeah, I and mean, then, you don't sort of casually just go to Mauritius or Madagascar. No, right? and I, you know, I, I again, I just like, I just said yes. I yeah. mean, I was 20-something, and yeah, you go. And then, you know, it was really interesting when I covered, when I, even when I was in D.C., working for MIGA, I covered Africa. Yeah. And I was a young guy, and a lot of my colleagues were a little older, and they had families like I do now. They didn't really want to travel. So I put my hand up. Right. And I went, and I have seen more of Africa. I mean, I drove from Ouagadougou to, you know, Jenny and Mopti on the Niger River, like, over, you know, you know, in a car. Over, I mean, I had the time of my life. 
I mean, yeah. and, and that, there were downsides to that job, but the upside was the ability to go, saw something like 38 African countries yeah. and all the scary ones because I was doing political risk. So I always was going to Sierra Leone and Liberia. You know, I went to Rwanda. I yeah. went to all of these places. That's and you're a big white guy going big into white these white dude showing up. <laughs> you can't yeah. sort of blend in, can it, you? It was, it was fun. It was a tiny little organization. And yeah. so I had this calling card and everybody was happy to see me. So I go, I go and see government officials, see private business. Yeah. And I had a great time. It was, it was really, and, and it was, it was a great exploration for me yeah so by that point i mean you already worked in germany you're taking southeast asian studies yeah you're quite globally aware at mm. a young age mm. where do you think that came from because in toronto i mean you know yeah. obviously over the border you've yeah. got new york and that's about it right well so. that's right so my 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 father uh, is and was a french historian so when oh, i wow. when i grew up i spent a couple of years in france and i think yeah. that gave me a, a, an opening and then i spent a year in the uk when i was 15 all with my family and i think that just opened the door a little yeah and then allowed me to kind of look through it and, and i think it started yeah. there yeah yeah same with myself my, my dad was a, a marine oh is that right so oh. i'd always see these photos as a kid yeah. like you know why is he in yeah. like you know, Q8 or something That's like right, that. Yeah. You see these old sort of crappy photos and yeah. that kind of sows a seed in your, yeah. your mind, I think. Absolutely. And the kids sort of are very receptive to that, right? So, Southeast Asia, Madagascar, there's a few sort of like jumping around. Yeah, totally. You did Java? You were East, East Java, Surabaya? Surabaya yeah. I've been to Surabaya I mean, right? many, many years ago. And it's not the kind of place you go there unless it's you're... It's a bit industrial. <laughs> yeah, I was, again, working for IFC, so they, they, they get, I was doing SMEs. Right. So, so, I lived in the Majapahit Hotel. It was super cheap. I was by myself, so they said, yeah. you know, I could get an apartment. But this hotel, it was like, it was a Mandarin Oriental hotel. It was awesome. But the, many of the, the Indonesians at the time thought it was haunted. So right. no one stayed there. <laughs> you got so, a discount. <laughs> yeah, so I got a rocking discount. So I just lived there. I mean, it was, after a year, I, I was done. Right. But, uh, but, uh, but yeah, that was, that was, again, that was interesting. I went to Madura, you know, drove all right. around. Wow. So all different parts of Amazing. Indonesia, yeah. But these are quite extreme, though, right? Does, mm. does that... That extreme nature. I mean, you talk about yourself as a frontier market person. Mm. I'm curious as to what that is. And we talked about Jess Pedersen, for example, off air, yeah, yeah, just right. before we yeah, having yeah. this chat. Yeah. Another frontier yeah. market yeah. guy who spent time yeah. in Afghanistan. Yeah. What is that? Is somebody? Is that the way you're hardwired as, as a, an explorer, an adventurer? Do you seek out? The, is, is it risk? Is it experience? What is it that attracts you to these markets that most normal people, unquote, quote? Yeah, would well, be a scared way. Um, <laughs> what is that? I, I think. I think. So it's not so much risk, because I think you know I'm, there are people that sort of jump off mountains and, right. and do stuff like that. I mean, you yourself doing Iron Man and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's a controlled risk. risk, right? It's a control. But I, see, I don't see. I don't. So it's not. It's not so much the raw risk. I think it's the cultural unfamiliarity, mm. and the. the I, I really enjoy that. I like, you know. Again, I, you know, I married somebody not from my own culture. I, yeah. I live outside of my own culture. I, I, and I think it's difficult, <laughs> but I feel, I feel somehow I learn a lot more. And, I, and, I, and so it's, I think it's that. And as you, can, as you say, I, I'm go, you go to some extremes, right? You're really, it's really quite different. Mm-hmm. I mean, being in Surabaya, not a lot of English speakers. You know, I speak some Bahasa. You, know, you, you manage, right? Mm. But that, that challenge, I think I really get a rise out of it. Mm. And I think that's that's when I say frontier markets. That's sort of what I like. I'm not going to, I mean, some people say developing markets, and they say like Bangkok, and I kind of, mm. I don't know, man. I mean, I guess that's right. That's true statement, but it, it's not as challenging as say a Yangon or or other parts of of, of Asia or or Africa. Or, or Is it too familiar? 
Well, no, but it depends who you are, right? For mm. some people, that's rare. But that's for their, you as for a... Me, for me, yeah. I, 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 trust me, I enjoy going to Bangkok. I love right. being in Singapore. Yeah. It's awesome, right? But I think in some respects, uh, yeah, a little, it's comfortable. And, mm. and now with a family and kids, I definitely see the upside. Yeah. But for me, if just on my own, yeah, probably not my bag. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting idea that, I mean, for myself, I went to Japan in the mid-90s yeah, yeah. after the bubble. I came at the wrong time, yeah. but you know the bubble had burst, and I went to Japan because I wanted to go out there. And in Japan, they have a, a concept which I think is similar in Chinese as well of the word outsider. And yes. It's gaijin, and if you actually look at the characters, it means outside person. So you're a gaijin or you're a Japanese. There's no sort of like in between. And living in that state, you realize that for a lot of people, it's very uncomfortable being outside. But then there are those people that kind of adapt to it. And there's a real strength in it, isn't it? Being on the outside, you can see things. And I wonder if that sort of goes back to the empathy part. If you're an observer, you can see things which other people take for granted. But just to compare your, not your Japanese experience with sort of what I do, I mean, I would find that very intimidating. So you going to Japan in the 90s, right? Mm. In a big monolithic culture, you know, very Japanese speaking. I mean, I... That, that 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 I would see as somewhat intimidating, right? Which is really? quite interesting. So uh, there is a balance in, in all of it. I mean, I think the language quite difficult, yeah, yeah uh, difficult to master. That you would be a bit, bit isolated, as you highlighted. Mm. So yeah, coming back, I think um, I think the empathy is so important. How do people see you? Mm. Right, you need have to see how people see you, and then you can help to shape that 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 prism. Mm. Yeah, oh, I see you a lot on um, social media. Um, as we mentioned already, you've got, a, you've got a big profile, right? And I think people are watching what you do. And obviously, you're a role model to people who, you know, in our space, but also people sort of coming through as well, whether they're entrepreneurs or people who think about going to new markets and so on. When you, you sort of see young people coming through now through the education system, graduating, going out into the world and doing, looking at what you're doing. When people sort of look at that, they say, well, what's sort of the first step that people can take? You know, would it be advisable to go? I mean, if, you know, if your kid said to you now, hey, dad, you know, I'm going to go to Africa. I'm going to go to, you know, one of these real frontier markets because, you know, that's going to teach me everything I need to know about being my own business person. Or How would you react to that? Is it, is it suitable for everybody? Do you have to be a certain type of person to really survive yeah, I, in it? And it's, there's no one size fits all and there's really no... Uh route mm. you know if somebody were to come and ask me how do i get to what you're doing i, I wouldn't be able to tell them, right? you you can't duplicate it <laughs> i mm. found my own path mm. everyone has to find their own the only thing i would suggest is that to, sort of to your point don't take on too much right so don't try and go and start a new business in a country you don't know anything right. about that's rather a lot so when i was doing this you know with the world bank i i could not have had a more stable you know working environment i was with this like you know everybody knows what it is it's very powerful it's large so i cut my teeth in it with with more comfort right? mm. and now then i jumped off after having some experience to something a little bit more risky but it's not like i mean yuma bank was risky i guess if you like but it's still it was still a bank it was still mm. quite large right so that's what i mean about the, the to risk tolerance there are some people that in myanmar and other countries jumping in founding a business in a third country not really knowing i mean um that that's a challenge i'm not yeah. sure whether that, that it could work but you're taking on a lot mm. there's a lot of pressure now isn't there for young people they're looking at being in a startup starting a startup it seems to be like the cool thing to do it does yeah. but there's also a route isn't it where you could do 10 years and 20 years in a vertical sector work out what's broken and then go and apply that to 
the world of entrepreneurship, yeah. right? And and again, you know, some people are lucky enough to have um, support from their families, mm. and they don't have college debt, or you know, whatever. Everybody's got a different situation. Some people have to make money, right? Some people don't. Some people don't have any college debt, and they can just go and live on a few dollars and kind of find their way, right? Family, as you know, you know, family, kids. It depends on your situation. So I think you need to customize it for you. Mm. I would never suggest that it's easy. It is not easy. It's not easy, you know. It's and 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 don't think that it is. So to your question, whether I would support, I would support my kids doing it, to, but to the right extent, right? You don't just want to t- kind of take a spot on a map, get on a plane, and go, right? I mean, you could, but you could probably make it easier for yourself by finding out where you're going, who you need to talk to, and kind of what you want to do. But I wouldn't be. I, I also wouldn't suggest that people should be frightened, right? Things do tend to work out. Yeah, they work out. Yeah. In the end. In the end. Yeah, they absolutely. I love the fact as well, I mean, I have to describe this to the listeners. We're sitting here on Saturday morning, and you're sitting here in a t-shirt, <laughs> an Obama t-shirt, right? Yeah. Black president on it. Yeah, yeah. That's a pretty cool. I've never seen this t-shirt, it's a, right? It's, so this is Muhammad Ali uh, with, yeah, with, with, with Obama's face on it. Right, gotcha. And yeah, I mean, he was a fighter, right? So There you go. It's like an Obey t-shirt, right? Yeah, so yeah, that's pretty cool. Is that how you dress day to day in the bank? No. Are you a certain Thai guy? Yeah. I'm right. a, I and and I think culturally, um, it's been an evolution in the bank. But yeah. I, I, you know, I, I think I was for many years one of the only guys in Yangon wearing a tie. People yeah. thought I was out nuts, right? right. It's hot. <laughs> so, uh, but I think it's important to show that level of yeah, professionalism, yeah, yeah. and I and I and I definitely try and keep it that way. We're not, you know, we're not a cool fintech startup kind of thing, right? We we're sort of feeling our way, but that's not us yet. Right. Right. Yeah. That's fine. I mean, it's like, you know, if you took a plane yeah. and the pilot turned up in a pair of shorts yeah. and a t-shirt, you'd be like, yeah. okay, all right. I'd I'm like not... the pilot to be wearing a uniform, right? He's flying my plane, right? Same have... with the bank, right? Well, that's right. And, you know, I'm a young guy. You know, when I started, I was 35. Right? Hmm. So I, there I am, a 35-year-old. And in Myanmar, culture and seniority really matter. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you need to you need to dress the part and take the job seriously. And I, I do that. Okay, so it's rounding up, Hal, the, a lot of our listeners, or increasing number of our listeners, come from outside of Asia. Mm. And, um, they're curious. Mm. So I think we're sort of attracting that wave of curious observers of Asia. I mean, there's those that now have to watch Asia. And, you know, Like they say, you know, China might not be part of your plans, but you're part of China's yeah. plans, right? A lot of these companies <laughs> now are realizing it the hard way, right? I mean, Asia generally. Um, for those sort of observing from the outside, they could be in Toronto, they could be anywhere in the West, right? You know, what are your, you know, what could we sort of share with them in terms of where we are now? Especially, I mean, Myanmar, people know so little about this market. You know, what what do we need to know? I mean, is is this a frontier market for the next five, ten years? Where are we going to be in the future? Well, I mean, there's no getting around the politics, right? And the Rakhine issue and, and those. And the way I would look at it, again, with my African background, I mm. have a certain context, and I think that context is important. So Myanmar is still very young in, it, in opening up. If it's five years, right? 2011-ish, so maybe yeah. a little longer, six years. It's, it's got, a, it's got, a, it's got a, a cultural journey and a political journey that's going to take time. And, and if you see it in, 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 you know, I think in some ways Asia's, you know, so developed, people don't have that patience. And they think that Myanmar should really, and there's some disappointment that it hasn't sort of been all things to all people. Yeah. Coming from an African perspective, I think it's awesome, right? It's safe, right? It's, it's, it's got so much opportunity, 
right? And I think, I, I, so that's the way I, I, I you know, sort of give it context. Now, it's, it's the pace of development, it will go up and down, right? It'll have its, but I think unlike other countries, I think the destination is certain, mm. right? So the question is, is it 5, 10, or 15? But you know the outcome. I mean, for me, it's just a certainty. 55 odd million people, the extractors haven't even been touched yet, right? Mm. There's, a, there's a huge uh, sort of potential for oil and gas, right? Um, great people. Yeah, right? the hunger in the people. We talked about this, yeah. right? They want to get stuff done and they want to start a business. And you know one of the interesting things? They have, you know, like muscle memory. They have mm. like an institutional memory of where the country was. Um, people who know their history know that Myanmar at one point was you know, the crown of, of Southeast Asia, that, mm. that, that Yangon, mm. Rangoon at the time, that was where it was at. Yeah. They have an institutional memory. Some of those people are still around. They have a pride, and I think that gives them a, a path, right? They, they, they know they can do it because they've done it already, right? I think they just, there's not the sense of urgency that we, that we have in the West, right? They're a little bit more philosophical, a little bit more patient. They care about other things, and I think that pace can frustrate people, but they'll get there. They'll yeah. figure it out. I think it was Jim Rogers, wasn't it, who said that Myanmar would be the next Thailand. Is that a fair comparison? Because you know that. Well, it's an obvious comparison. Yeah. I mean, they're right next door. Yeah. They're roughly the same size, and all the rest of it. Um, but does that condemn them to be just kind of? I mean, because it could be quite different, couldn't it? I mean, I think it could be very. These different. Asian markets are all quite different in character. You know, I agree, and I and I and I, I feel you know without being too glib, I think that Myanmar has what I would call last mover advantage. Mm, interesting. Right? So what that means is that you you don't really need to invent stuff. You just need to learn from everyone around you and apply mm. it. Mm. And I think Myanmar has developed so late. I mean, it's it's late by a matter of you know forty years. Mm. There's no legacy infrastructure. So it's not like you know my, my industry is one in particular financial mm. sector, but everyone. So if done correctly, that leap is a huge one. Mm. And you don't need to make the wasted investment, all the capex, all the other things in tech that is sort of is already passe, yeah, right? Yeah. And I think that this kind of pulls it all together. I think that's a real, and you've seen it in in, in uh, sorry in the telcos. Mm-hmm. Think about it; they didn't go through like I don't know two G and then three G. They went straight to four G, and the cost of putting in those networks yeah. far less than they had been historically. Mm-hmm. The impact far higher, right? And I think if you look across industries, I think that will happen, and I think that's the X factor in Myanmar. That, that, how can we apply global technology in a frontier market and then of size? I mean, in, in Asian terms, Myanmar is not that big, right? 55 million. Mm-hmm. But in global terms, it's a big country, yeah. 55 million people. Same right? as the UK. Same maybe, as the yeah. Bigger than right. Canada. You know, yeah. these are big markets. So I think you could see it take off. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Last mover advantage. I mean, if you look in the, the search world, yeah. we had AltaVista and Lycos and Excite, and then along came Google, right? Yeah. So it works in that sense. It, 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 See what's broken and what you can apply. Do don't take the all guys. the risks that these yeah. guys are taking. Now, I, I don't think you can do that strategically, right? I mean, yeah. you can't just wait because they got so. some guy will t- take off. But as a country at a macro yeah. level, it's there. I think the key thing is to learn and listen, right? Yeah. Do you think there will come a time? I mean, now we're in Singapore as a good example. I mean, if we were to go back 50, 60 years, Singapore as an example, yeah. it'd be quite exotic. I mean, even in the 80s, yeah. 90s, Singapore you sat on Orchard Road and had a beer out there, you felt like you were in the tropics. You know, it could have been felt like Myanmar or Burma 50, 60 years ago, right? Now, Singapore's a almost like a first choice for many, for example, Australians. When they look around the world, they used to go to the UK. Now people are thinking, oh, let's go to Singapore because this is is right for me. This is where the talent goes, right? With Burma, Myanmar as an example, 
how long will that be for before we are at a situation where people are thinking, yeah, you know, this makes sense. I'm going to go to Yangon. I'm going to go and set up here. We're not quite there yet. Are we? It's still sort of like the frontier people like yourself and Jess, for example. It's it, But it's moved a lot in the last five years. I mean, it, it has moved. You're getting more... First of all, I think that many, some Myanmar, some Myanmar uh, leaders are starting to understand the value that foreigners bring to the mm. country, that they do bring skills that you know, aren't necessarily locally available. So I think that openness makes it more welcoming for, for sometimes for foreigners to come. Um, I think the geopolitics are obviously <laughs> neutralizing some of that positive impact, but there it is. I think, um, you know, I would hesitate. I, 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 I don't know if Myanmar will ever be a, a Singapore. Singapore is a pretty unique mm-hmm. entity, right? If you ask the same question about Jakarta, you know, I don't think Jakarta right. is going to become a Singapore. I think Yangon will become its own thing. But I think in terms of being at a, a, a place where people would say, so, okay, I could go to Bangkok, right. you know, Yangon, Manila, or, or Jakarta, because Yangon's not in that class yet, right? Mm. It's, as you say, it's sort of at its own. But we're seeing that now with Bangkok, as yeah. an example. If, yeah. you, if you were younger, yeah. bit sort of less sort of in terms of your, you know, you didn't have any family, you could yeah, easily yeah. move to Bangkok. It's now a choice now for graduates, right? Absolutely. I'm seeing it from like European oh, no. I, I, American I, I graduates. I recommend Bangkok. I mean, you, you, you're not going to come here. It's too expensive. Yeah. I mean, Singapore and Hong Kong, I mean, they're first world, but it's expensive. Yeah. Right? So if you want to go somewhere a bit, a bit more affordable where you get value for money, you go to Bangkok, right? I think it's a real option. But I, and so I think it's going to take some time for that infrastructure to get there. But there are mm. quite a lot of, you know, foreigners, younger people who want to come and have an adventure. And it's safe and, you know, it's getting, it, it gets better every year. Awesome. How posher, everybody. It's been a real privilege sitting here and sharing the adventure with you. Yeah, yeah. A short snapshot. Um, and, and I guess, you know, people will listen and, you know, what often happens is people are inspired by people's stories and they want to reach out. What's sort of the best way to contact you? I know you're the, C- you're the first CEO of a bank we had on here. So, is that tra- right? yeah. <laughs> so do we have to go through the PR people? Are you happy yeah, for people no. to reach out to you? Yeah, you know, a bit of a LinkedIn troll. So right. feel free to hit me up on LinkedIn. Yeah. And, and I, and I want to help. As you say, I mean, honestly, I learn from all the people that reach out to me. Yeah. It, try not to sell me something. I would appreciate it. But it, in, terms of, in terms of just talking and, and sharing ideas, I'm, I'm more than happy to do it. Awesome. Yeah. And, I, and thanks for having me on, by the way. Oh, I really appreciate pleasure. it. Pleasure. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show.